0: This is Remote Ruby.
1: Have you any remote ideas to the meaning of
2: the word? Hello, Christopher. Hello, how are you? I'm better. I'm better than you are. (laughs) After hearing your detail through the grapevine about your illness.
0: Yeah. Last week was her son's first week in daycare. So, of course, he got stomach bug or something. And then... Sunday night. Oh my god! I'm pretty sure it was like food poisoning because I have not been that sick for years, and it took me out for like till Wednesday. And I think I like worked half a day on Wednesday. And by by the time lunch was around, I was like, yeah, I'm just gonna relax for the rest of the day. Took it out of me. Whole body was just sore, and like I didn't do anything, but <laughs> everything hurts.
2: <laughs> Did you have some O'Charlies? No.
0: But we still have, I think we still have one, maybe.
2: I don't, I think we have one as well. And I think they run a uh, seafood ghost kitchen out of it for like DoorDash.
0: (laughs) Ghost kitchens are like such a normal thing these days. It's kind of nuts. I mean, I guess it's a good business model for them. If they're not getting regular customers in, at least their kitchen
2: can still be used. Yeah. I don't know the Chili's here. Maybe we talked about this already on remote Ruby. The Chili's here started having the Maggiano's Italian kitchen only on like Uber Eats. And I was like, when did we get one of those? And I couldn't find it. So I looked on the map and I was like, oh, that's a Chili's. (laughs) That's funny. Little detective work. Yeah. I don't know. It's a new thing. But you're feeling better. Oh, thank
0: God. Yeah. I couldn't do anything for three days. I didn't eat for like three days. Nothing even remotely sounds good even today, but it was rough, but good in time to record remote Ruby. Mm. Well, it matters, right?
2: Life finds a way. <laughs> also, this will be out in two weeks, so I guess the Rails CFP will have ended. Whether I submit a talk or not, which I have like six hours to do, I, still yeah, I was going to go say, it ends tonight, right? <laughs> yeah. Which I only know that because last night, Andrew texted me about it. I decided not to
0: this year. Just too busy with other things going on and applied to be a guide instead. So mm-hmm. i least be trying to stay involved in, you know, the conference, even if I'm not like giving a talk this time, but that'll be a good alternative. That's way less work to do ahead of time. Cause we're going on vacation two weeks before RailsConf in April. Yeah. So- I wouldn't even be around really to like work on my talk right before the conference, but I just figured being a guide would be a great way to help new people that are there for the first time or whatever. And I've never been a guide before, so I thought that'd be a fun new experience too.
2: I love giving talks, but I hate every day leading up to it. So I couldn't imagine actually like working a two-week trip in there before that. I was talking to Aaron Francis yesterday, and he's speaking at Laricon. And I think full stack EU, you and he's giving like the same talk at both. And I was like, that's gotta be such a cool feeling to go to a conference, to give a talk Be prepared. Yeah. Like that you've already given. <laughs> so you just like go and have fun at the conference. I don't know what that feels like. <laughs> so.
0: Yeah. It's a lot of work to make a talk. It takes heck of a lot of time. Didn't Nadia say she spends at least 40 hours on each talk.
2: I think if not, I at think least that maybe more. Yeah.
0: yeah. So, I mean, that's a full week of work for one 30 minute, 45 minute talk. A lot of effort. It's like a screencast, you know, take forever just for a single minute of video.
2: Yeah. Aaron just released like a MySQL course, Aaron Francis, and he said it's like many hours of content, maybe like 60 or something like that. And all I can think about is when I made. Like a five-minute video took several hours to produce. Like I can't imagine 60 hours of content. He said it was like his full-time job and nights and weekends. I said, man.
0: Yeah, it is painful. It is definitely painful to do for, especially when you look at it, you're like, nobody's going to know how much work I put into this. And it's like five minutes. And they're just like, watch it on their phone and then back off to YouTube for watching (laughs) PewDiePie or something. It just feels not like a great accomplishment at the end because you're like, ugh, that's all I made It's five minutes. It's not even a feature film with Keanu Reeves.
2: Yikes. (laughs) All right. Well, Ufuk and I were talking recently, and Ufuk, if you aren't familiar, is a manager at Shopify over the... Oh, I can't think of the exact term, but it's basically people working on Ruby, Rails, all kinds of cool stuff at Shopify, and one thing we've talked about a lot on this show is wishing for better tooling for day-to-day Ruby development. And Ufuk said, I have someone you should talk to, and that person is Vinny Stock. And they're with us today to talk about all kinds of cool things happening in the Ruby tooling space. So hello, Vinny. Hey, thank you so much for having me. It's exciting for me, selfishly, to sit here and ask you all the questions I want to ask about Ruby. And I know Chris sent me a blog post, I think even from a few days ago, about the LSP. Oh, it's from today. Yeah, Yeah. just earlier today. That is. It was
0: like it was planned.
2: (laughs) (laughs) It was good timing and also astonishing to me that today is only the 24th. Let's start before we get into Ruby tooling and kind of what you're working on at Shopify. How did you get into Ruby development? So my journey with programming
1: began at university, but I actually didn't go to university for computer science. I went for electrical engineering. So I learned to program in assembly and C. Then I learned a tiny little bit of Java, but very little. But then out of university, I got... Job, I first started using Ruby there, and the first thing was like compared to CN assembly, I was like, "Whoa, what have I been doing so far? This is so much better It's so much easier to get my ideas out of my head into the code compared to anything else that I had used before and so I learned a lot about product development with Ruby on Rails there, and then, after about four years or so, I joined Shopify also as a product developer working in the retail organization. But I was very curious about, because I didn't go to school for computer science, I didn't know how anything really worked under the hood. And I was really curious how something like Rails or even how to build a programming language from scratch, how all those things work. So I started trying to make some open source contributions and kind of slowly started getting in touch with folks from open source until I finally ended up making my way towards the Ruby and Rails infrastructure team.
2: Infrastructure Uh, team. That's the term I
1: was looking for. Right. The overarching group is Ruby and Rails infrastructure. Ufuk's team, which is the one I belong to, is Ruby infrastructure. So just concerned with the Ruby part, not the Rails part.
2: Well, that's cool. So now you're on the Ruby infrastructure team. When you joined that team, did you start with working on something like a language server or like what was kind of some of your first projects on the team? So when I joined the team, it was actually called Ruby types, the specific team inside
1: of Oofook's team. And it was only concerned about gradual typing for Ruby. So we were doing a lot of work contributing to survey, adopting survey internally contributing to Tapioca to generate RBIs for Survey to consume. And we actually ended up expanding the responsibility of our team. It kind of segues into how we started the Ruby LSP. But basically I joined the team and I was for a long time Ruby Mine user. But when I joined the team, I had the Survey extension for VS Code that, you know, we were using and we were contributing to Survey. so. I wanted to use the tools we were building. I didn't believe in building the tool and not using it and actually dogfooding it. So I switched to VS code. And the first thing that caught my attention is that highlighting was not what I expected it to be coming from the IDE. And so I tried to understand, like, why is it not highlighted consistently? For example, method invocations, when they use parentheses or when they did not use parentheses, they were sometimes highlighted differently. I was like, why is that? Why is that happening? And I thought the issue was related to my theme, that maybe the theme was not properly specialized for Ruby. And so I did a little bit in our hack days. At Shopify, we have hack days, which is usually a week or four days or so that we can hack on whatever we like. And I took one of those weeks and I said, I'm going to understand why it doesn't get highlighted properly. And so I started understanding like, okay, the reason it doesn't get highlighted properly is because it highlights using TextMate grammars, and those are based on regexes. But if you take a look at a single line of Ruby and you just have foo on that line, you don't know with a rejects if that's a local variable or if that's a method invocation. You need to know if it was declared as a local variable before. And so that made me understand, okay, so that's why there's ambiguity in the grammar. And so you can't figure it out with a rejects. But then how is it highlighted properly in the IDEs? And it's like, oh, because they actually parse the code and they realize it. And then I understood that, okay, you need to actually use richer information to figure out how to highlight the code properly, which made me then learn about semantic highlighting and eventually led to language servers since semantic highlighting is one of the features in the specification. And after a little bit of exploration, I did explorations on semantic highlighting. Ufuk, at around the same time, did explorations of auto-formatting and diagnostics using RuboCop. And then the team sort of came together and said, like, OK, we think there is an opportunity to do something cool here and have a rich language server for Ruby. And that's kind of how the Ruby LSP came to be. And we grew from being only Ruby types to being Ruby developer experience. And so our team is both
2: responsible for typing and a developer experience at Trump. I'm so glad that team exists. I don't know how much that team makes, but they need to make more money because I'm thrilled to hear somebody's working on it. Uh, how long has the Ruby experience team and even like the LSP project, how long has that been a thing? Well, that's. Actually, funny, you were talking
1: about how the blog post came out today. It's because tomorrow, it's one year of the Ruby LSP right. from the first commit. The team as Ruby types exists for a bit longer. I don't know exactly when to start I want to say
2: 2019, but I'm not exactly sure if it's that year we started looking into survey. Very cool. So the team has existed for a year. Okay, maybe first, for those listening, maybe not familiar with... What an LSP is, do you mind maybe kind of explaining at a high level what that is and what it does? So I
1: can explain why it was created and I think that helps understand how they work. So before the language servers, the way you implemented functionality that is specialized for programming languages like go to definition or auto formatting was all inside of plugins. And plugins for editors are usually very specific and very coupled with the editor. So you have each editor uses a different programming language to create their plugins. And also the editors expose different APIs to their plugins. So if you wanted to have Ruby features in 10 editors, it's very likely you would need to reimplement the same features 10 times because you wouldn't be able to just take the plugin made for VS Code and just use it on Vim or something like that. Language servers are a way to address this issue and allow programming languages community to join efforts in making their developer experience better. The way they work is you have either a built-in or a plugin client layer on the editor that spawns a background process in the developer machine, which is the server part, the language server, and the editor and the server communicate using JSON And so with the JSON interface, you decouple the programming language specific parts from the editor specific parts. So the same client layer that can connect NeoVim to a JavaScript language server can also connect it to a Ruby language server. And then those language servers are only concerned with the logic to implement features for the language they are designed for. So the, a Ruby language server is not concerned with which editor is connecting to it. It's only concerned about how do I do auto-formatting, how to
2: implement code's definition, stuff like that. So the work you're doing on the Ruby LSP right now sounds kind of focused for VS Code, but it is something that can be taken hopefully one day or even now to another editor and implemented To be used with said editor?
1: Yeah, we focus on GS code because that's our sort of our editor of choice. But it already works in other editors. As long as the editor implements the language server protocol, it has that client layer. You can connect to the Ruby LSP. And in fact, some members of the community already use it with NeoVim and they're sharing configurations in an issue in the repo. That's cool. It's really cool.
2: So, what are some of the goals? you've set out to achieve with the LSP right now? One of the things we wanted for the
1: Ruby LSP is for it not to be concerned, at least for a long time, not to be concerned with type checking. We are highly invested in survey. We believe type checking Ruby is very difficult. And with all of the investment on survey, it has reached a point where It really improves your development experience. The idea of the Ruby LSP was to be an addition to survey so that like, okay, if you don't have types in your application, we'll do a best effort in terms of providing features. It will not be as accurate as something like survey because there is no way you can be completely accurate without type checking. But then if you want that extra accuracy, if you want that type checking features, then you would adopt survey. So we began with a bunch of features that don't require type checking. So, for example, Ruby LSP at this moment doesn't implement to go to definition. The reason is survey already implements that. So it was not super high priority for our team, but we added other things that could be helpful to developers like semantic highlighting, as I mentioned before, auto formatting with RuboCop diagnostics with RuboCop. Some quality of life things, like on type formatting to auto complete the tokens of do a if statement or while or something like that. So we focus more initially on those quality of life things to use it alongside with Survey. And now we do plan to have go to definition implemented as well for projects that are not using typing yet.
2: It is in our future roadmap and ruby lsp isn't the first language server for ruby correct yeah that's right i don't actually know much about it but the only thing like i've seen available to me is solar graph and so i've just always like put it in and thought even if it helps me a little bit it helps me what are maybe some of the differences between the work you're doing on ruby lsp and something like solar graph so I think the main difference that there are, as you
1: said, other language servers. So Survey is one of them. It has a language server. There's also Steep, which type checks using RBS and also has a language server. If I'm not mistaken, Type Prof, which is another type of type checker, also comes with a language server and solar graph. I think the main distinction between all of them and the Ruby LSB is that we don't have type checking as a main component of LSP right now. Like, for example, the way we plan on implementing Definition is basically just with matching based on method names and arity or constant names and giving you different options rather than trying to type check. As I mentioned before, type checking Ruby code is very difficult and you need extra annotations in your code, you need other things we wanted to see and we provide the best experience possible without having to change your code without having to add yard annotations or anything to inform the types to another tool.
2: That makes sense. And when you mentioned Sorbet having a language system, it makes sense when you said that, but I've never thought about that. Like I've never thought, oh yeah, like of course it has some kind of system in there, but yeah, that makes sense. Can
0: you explain what go to definition is, or what are some of the things that a language server provides to the editor so that it can do this fancy stuff?
1: So, the way go to definition works, it is kind of a more complex feature than most of the others. Go to definition is if you command click on top of a method or a constant, it takes you to where that constant or method is defined. The difficulty behind it that is a little bit more difficult than most features in the specification is that the definition may not be in the same file that you're currently editing. And so you're no longer dealing only with the files that are active in the editor. You need to index the entire code base, discover all of the definitions, save some sort of representation of where each thing is defined and define also a way to search it. So, for example, so you have foo invocation with one, two and three as arguments. Then we need to look for, okay, what are the definitions of foo that we know about? Which one of them can accept three arguments? And for that, you kind of need to be careful with splats or things like that, because you may be able to accept infinite arguments depending on what the signature of the method is. And then you find the definition, you match it, and then you jump to the right file at the right position. But it has sort of infrastructure type of things that you need to be careful about. Like, how do you index the code base in a performant way? How do you maintain the index synchronized? For example, if someone runs RuboCop from the terminal and your files are changed, but they're not open in the editor, you still need to know that they changed in a way and you need to re-index those. So those are things where we're taking our time and being careful about how we do it. We had a first prototype for indexing code bases. We tried it on our monolith, the core monolith, and it took more than five minutes to index the entire code base without counting gems. And so we were like, okay, this is not going to work five minutes. We can't just tell people to open your editor and then go walk your dog and be back five minutes after to be able to code. So we revisited it. That was actually an exploration done by Ufuk and Kevin Newton. who was also in the Ruby infrastructure team. They found a way to do it. To significantly faster using instruction sequences, something about like 30 plus seconds, 40 plus seconds for the core model. So that's more manageable. So those are the types of things we're taking into consideration and that the complexities around go to definition. And you asked about other features in the specification. There are many, I'm not going to be able to remember all of them on the top of my head, but some of them auto formatting. So when you save a file, it formats the file for you. Diagnostics is when you get those squiggly blue or red lines telling you that something is wrong, there's a syntax error or something like that. There is go to definition to jump to the definition. There's autocomplete. If you press dot on something to go to method, it pulls up the autocompletion. Let me see there are code actions for refactors. So, for example, extract to method, you select a part of the code, tell it to extract to a method, it extracts it for you. There are many, many different features. And one advantage of how language servers are designed is that even if something is not in the specification, you can still implement custom requests on your language server. And if it proves to be very useful and it's something that is interesting, you can even propose that to be a part of the specification upstream.
0: I just want to take a minute to thank our sponsor, Honey Badger. They are not only my favorite error and uptime monitoring service, but they've also added several awesome new features. One of those being the public status pages. So it makes perfect sense that your error and uptime monitoring tool can have a public status page for you to communicate any downtime outages with your customers. So whether US East one is down or you forgot to add a configuration file, Honey Badger is there for you to help communicate any downtime or outages with your customers. Plus, they've also added SSL certificate monitoring. So like many of us use these days, let's encrypt certificates expire every 90 days. And if for some reason you're a week away from expiring an SSL certificate, they can let you know ahead of time so that you can take care of it without any outages for your customers. Plus, managing the errors and things inside of HoneyBadger has gotten even easier with HoneyBadger Actions which you can use to automatically assign errors to yourself or another team member, add tags to different error classes and more. And they also have batch actions, which you can use on the search results to help manage your backlog of work to do. So HoneyBadger is the place to check out for error and uptime monitoring, and it's only getting better. So check them out at HoneyBadger.io.
2: I have a question when you said, yeah, this takes like five minutes and that takes too long. And obviously there's a lot of complexity I don't understand there. But then that brought the question to my head. What do you write a language server in? What language? Many
1: language servers. They're not written for the language they are designed for. So for example, Survey is designed for Ruby, but it's written in C++. And those are typically for performance reasons. But in the case of the Ruby LSP, it is actually pure Ruby. And so it's completely written in Ruby. It hooks into RuboCop, like actually using RuboCop code as a gem. It doesn't run RuboCop in like a shell type of thing, execute externally and then just grab results. We thought using Ruby was going to allow us to iterate much faster. And with some of the initiatives that are going on the team with things like YJIT and even YARP, we thought, I think we're going to be able to deliver our performance goals with Ruby. And that so far has proven to be true.
0: That's awesome. That is what I wanted to hear. I was like hoping it wasn't like, oh, you know, we had to write this in Rust or something, but that's awesome. I love that. Cause I do imagine that taking advantage of RuboCop, there's so much stuff in there already that's got to save you an enormous amount of time building. If you had to build all that stuff from scratch, that would be a whole another job. That's been a long time project for a lot of people. So that makes sense. That's exciting. And even that's able to do, because you said, you know, the Shopify core monolith took 30 plus seconds to do, but how large is that? That's pretty massive, right?
1: I don't know exactly the numbers, but it is gigantic. Yeah. So <laughs> yeah. It's usually how we test our features. It's like if it works for core, it will work for other apps we have. And so, yeah, if it can do it in 30 something seconds for core, it'll be much faster for other apps.
0: Yeah. So, my little blog application at home will be instantaneous pretty much. <laughs>
1: <laughs> Hopefully, around <yeah, from> that <laughs> expectation. Yeah. It's
0: really interesting because the language servers, I've never really even considered. What goes into building a text or code editor, I guess. And so, like the editors themselves can implement UI and everything however they want. But whenever you type something, I guess, is just kind of sending these signals over to the language server saying, Hey, user just did this and we want to offer you the chance to do whatever because they just hit period and you're like, Okay, we're going to go autocomplete or whatever. So, those are kind of abstracting the whole code editing experience into a thing anybody can plug into, which is fascinating. So going from there, like what are some of the like challenges that you run into now? So like performance of getting all this stuff loaded and everything, definitely probably step number one of getting started on this project. But then like, what's the next step of the problem of
1: building the language server, like, where do you go from there? Yeah, performance and stability are usually like our top concerns because if you have performance issues or if the language server is constantly breaking, it really becomes an issue for developers because they're trying to do work and instead of helping, the language server is just breaking or it's lagging so much they can't actually get access to the features that a decent responsiveness in the editor. So those are always top to mind and like we would probably reject features if they degraded performance too much rather than trying to have more features at the cost of performance we haven't actually implemented the indexing part just yet so that would be our immediate next step in terms of adding more features because it unlocks a lot of different things having the code base indexed and having that knowledge in the language server allows you to go to definition but it also allows Hover to display like documentation and comments on hover or signature help to be able to tell you what the expected parameters are for a method or even autocomplete and stuff like that. So being able to have indexing implemented will unlock many different features. So that would be our immediate next step in terms of unlocking a lot more stuff. So do you have to build a
0: database that runs internally to You'll have to index this and make it quickly searchable and all of that, that storing it somewhere and some data structure for all these different use cases and things. I guess it's running HTTP requests between the editor and the server, or is it a RPC protocol kind of thing? Or I was just kind of curious about how that works. It's
1: done through JSON RPC. So basically... When the editor spawns the server, it keeps a handle to standard in and to standard out. The requests are sent through standard in and all of the responses returned through standard out. And that's how it communicates with the language server. The other question you had. So usually language (laughs) servers keep that representation either in memory or they have some sort of cache. We haven't actually began exploring that just yet. But it is true, you could use a database like you could literally create a SQLite file and just push the knowledge in there and use it for queries. I don't know how performant that would be if it would be fast enough for looking up definitions and stuff like that. But there is a, the advantage that it sort of has the cache built in, right? Because the database is already there, so it's kind of already cached and you don't have to build the entire index from scratch every single time.
0: I was thinking about when you're talking about the Shopify code base being large, you could load it the first time, cache it somewhere. The next time you open your editor, you could operate off the cache. Even if you knew it was stale, then in the background, maybe it can be reloading or something. And there's probably tons of fascinating problems to building this behind the scenes piece of the language server. It seems like a very challenging
1: project on its own. I'm probably biased, but it is a lot of fun. And yes, it is challenging. (laughs) But yeah, it's fun. And one of the things I like the most is how short the feedback loop is. Because the Ruby LSP is made in Ruby, if you add a new feature, you can immediately use it on the Ruby feed itself. You just reload your editor and it's there. So that immediate feedback loop is something I
2: really enjoy while coding in the Ruby LS. I wanted to ask, what's been your favorite aha moment? Or just you built a feature and then you used it and you were like, filled with joy. Let me think. The
1: survey LSV one was local variable and instance variable renaming. So if you click on a local variable, right-click, and you tell it to rename to something, it renames all of the occurrences of that variable. That has been live in Survey for a while, and it's very helpful if you're doing it. You know, that little thing, oh, I named this, and I don't like the name. It's not very descriptive. Now I have to update it in 15 places. Survey can take care of that for you, and it's so fast. For the Ruby LSP, I think, to be honest, the most impactful thing has been one of the first features, which is auto-formatting. Because you make sure CI is never going to fail on running RuboCop. You don't have to run RuboCop on your machine because you know when you edited the file, it was already taken care of for you. Uh, So I would probably select that. It's not much of
2: an eye moment, but it was like, oh, yes, this is exactly Mm -hmm. what we needed. Yeah, you mentioned RuboCop. Are you using RuboCop for the formatting or using something like SyntaxTree for formatting? So the Ruby LSP supports both.
1: We are well invested in RuboCop in our apps. And it is still, I believe, the most common option used by the Ruby community. But as you mentioned, SyntaxTree has a built-in formatter on top of being like a parser utility tool. And so we do support it. We are going to change that, but currently you can't configure which one you want. It's based on whether RuboCop is in your bundle or not. If it is in the bundle,
2: we'll use RuboCop. If it's not, syntax tree is selected. Do you think being able to choose like standard in the future is a possibility? Yes. And that actually leads to talk a little bit about
1: our future plans of adding a plugin system. People have already proposed be able to format with standard and also with Ruby format. I think those are all valid choices. Like I would really like the Ruby LSP to support all of those, but I think it would not be scalable to have all of the different options implemented in the Ruby LSP code base. I would very much like to design a plugin system so that the tools can export their own plugins and sort of hook into the Ruby LSP and deliver the functionality they want. To me, it would give a lot more freedom to the maintainers to be able to like, okay, I'm exporting plugin from standard or from Ruby format or from wherever other formatter. And then I tell Ruby LSP, hey, this person's using this other formatter. I want you to replace formatting from RuboCop to Ruby format or to standard. And so that is one of our future plans to design a plugin system like that. And on top of formatters, it could also be used for other type of functionality, like not only replacing a formatter, but one of the ideas we have is allowing plugins to work kind of like a rack middleware for requests. So if you imagine, for example, in the case of Rails, if we were to have Ruby LSP plugin for Rails, it could do things like hot reloading the website on save it could show the columns for a model on hover it could jump from a controller action to its corresponding route using go to definition and all of that can be done with a middleware type of approach where you have here's the base response from the ruby lsp and then the rails plugin comes in adds whatever makes sense for Rails in that context. And then we return it all to the editor and the user gets that extra bit of information. And with a system like that, really, the freedom is for the maintainers to decide what editor features are relevant for my tool. So you can have one for Sinatra, for GraphQL, for whatever other tool, and it can all hook
2: into the LSV. I want to shout with joy at the thought of some of those things you mentioned. So the plugin system sounds like a really awesome goal. What are maybe some of the other things you're thinking about, not necessarily committed to, but just ideas you have for the future of the Ruby LSP? Again, bringing back to performance, one of the things that is often
1: on my mind is how we could incorporate some sort of parallelism in the Ruby LSP. The requests in a language server are usually independent. And to bring back to what Chris was mentioning before, it is exactly as you described, it synchronizes text as the user is typing. And once their debounce runs up, once you finish typing, you get a batch of language feature requests, one after the other, like depending on how much your language server supports, you could get eight, nine, ten requests all batched. And they're all independent. So if you have some sort of parallelism, you can greatly improve the responsiveness in the editor. So that's one thing that's usually on my mind is how to introduce parallelism to the Ruby LSP. It is complex, but it would provide some good benefit. The next immediate thing that we would like to handle, as I mentioned, is code indexing, because it unlocks so many other features. But finally, the last thing is the plugin system that we would really like to have done and, and open that possibility to folks to
2: add more functionality. Outside of the LSP, are there any other type of projects happening I think you mentioned like Kevin's on the Ruby infrastructure team and we've talked to Kevin about syntax tree and then recently building a Ruby parser. Are there any other kind of projects within there that you find interesting or want to talk about? We are doing some
1: work contributing to the new Ruby debugger, the official debugger, because even though that's not a language server, it is related to developer experience and it greatly improves the developer experience. It like, The Ruby debug one has VS Code extension you can install. And on VS Code, you can use the UI interface to debug Ruby code, which is very convenient. So we are starting some contributions to it, and we would very much like to contribute more features to it and just make it a richer experience of debugging Ruby through the UI. Because it feels like for most folks, and that includes myself, like the usual debugging techniques are Put statements and maybe sometimes buy bug, but it doesn't support very rich features that debugger with a UI interface might support. So we're trying to invest a little bit in in that front
2: as well. Yeah, that sounds awesome because a lot of times just by accident, I will accidentally like click a debug in VS code, like little red dot. I'm like, this is useless. Even if I were to run this, it wouldn't know what I was doing. So yeah, that sounds awesome. I just. Wanted to say you got me thinking.
0: I don't know for how long, probably the majority of my Rails career, I've used the annotate gem to like just dump comments in these files, like your model files and your test files and whatever. And being able to hover over something and have it tell me, here's the columns you have available eliminates like all this mess because. Every time you run a migration, it updates like the fixtures and the model and the test and a bunch of things. And it's like, all that could go away because you would have the rich knowledge in your editor, which would be amazing. So I couldn't be more excited for this. This is the stuff that we've needed. And we've like had these hacky solutions like Annotate does a great job for what we have had with our limitations around editing and stuff. But this is really going to solve so many problems. I cannot wait for these things. I'll have to try the Neo Vim support, but definitely going to have to install the VS Code extension and start playing with this because, yeah, it just gets me excited with like, we can have such a better experience and we just accepted it for so long as like, yeah, Ruby's not typed, so we just have to deal with these things. But I feel like that's changing now. And I'm so thankful for what you guys are doing.
1: This is so exciting. There is so much potential. And I agree. I, I think we sort of got kind of complacent with the tools. For example, TypeScript, a big motivation of it is not necessarily just being able to type check the code. It's all the tooling that you can build around it. And there's so much space. I think it's also highly aligned with Ruby's goal of making the developer happy. Because with really good tooling, it is a much better experience of coding. I've used a little bit of Rust in the past, just playing around. And the development experience in Rust is so good. It really made me wish, like, oh, man, we need this for Ruby as well. And not exactly related, but a way that our team tends to think about these things is not necessarily only in terms of like, oh, a language server or an editor or stuff like that, but developer experience also includes other things. So for example, just having very clear up-to-date documentation or even error messages being clear and telling you exactly like, oh, this is the error, but here's the help message as well of what typically triggers this problem so that it can help you fix your code. Which is something I feel like Rust does really, really
2: well. And we're still sort of catching out to it. I've been learning Rust the past two weeks. And when you were talking earlier about being able to like, you know, hover over something and like see documentation, I was doing that today and like somebody had an image in their documentation and that image showed up like in VS code. I was like, what the is this? It's wild. The Rust tooling is crazy good. It's really good. Yeah, it's really well-made.
0: You can start embedding GIFs in your editor there.
2: (laughs) Full-length movies. Our new Pirate (laughs) Bay documentation.
0: I'm excited for this. You reminded me of... Have either of you seen Gary Bernhardt's talk? He talks about building an editor... He's basically talking about, he made this text editor and it'll highlight lines for performance that are like, these are slow lines and whatever. And like the end of the talk, he's like, and this is basically a lie. I didn't build this, but we should be working on these things. It just like gets me excited because when you're running Honey Badger or Scout or New Relic or something and having I imagine that eventually you can have all of the recent errors can be like highlighted on lines in your editor. And you can see like this line of code has triggered a thousand errors. We should address this. This line of code is the slowest part of your views. You should keep that in mind when you're like writing your code here or just the simple stuff that like beginners when they're not logged in and they try and view a page where it expected the user to be logged in. And so it says like, You know, called name on no class. And it like tries to show you that this variable name in the error log is the one causing the problem. But if you can actually show that in the editor and highlight that a little bit better, and like they could hover over it and you could kind of have their message right there embedded in your editor, it would make life so much easier for anybody new, for anybody who's doing day to day performance work or just like maintenance things, fixing errors. Having more context in your editor is just going to make life a million times easier. And it goes back to what you were talking about. Like you can write C++ or assembly, but getting things from your head into the computer and code as fast as possible is there's a big delay there still, even in Ruby. And like this takes a whole other step forward on the speed which you can get your idea into the computer, which it's going to be
1: so awesome. I'm so excited for this. And even Ruby still has those things that kind of feel like magic, especially when you're beginning to work with Ruby. Like you're starting a Rails application and you invoke an association that comes from belongs to or something. And you're like, "Where where is this method coming from? I don't know. You kind of take for granted after you had some years of experience that you're like, oh, yeah, sure. This must be coming from an association. But if we had editor tooling that could help junior people and beginners to learn that a little bit more easily, then it would be even an even better experience. It could onboard people faster.
0: Yeah. Cause these are all like skills you pick up as a developer that are not really valuable skills. They're like, you're learning a nuance of the language and how to interpret the weird error message and the stack trace and stuff. But it's like, if it was a bit more structured, you wouldn't have to know that. It would just tell you right in context and you would just be able to address the problems right then. So I feel like it's greasing the wheels a lot so that those little nuances, and a reason like I like to say that I like using Ruby because we're optimizing things for humans, which are probably the slowest part of building software and every language kind of before that is like it works use C++ or Rust because you're worried about performance and you're optimizing what you're doing for the computer to be as fast as possible not for the humans and so like we're working on the other side of that coin which is probably the most valuable thing in the long term is to make writing code as easy as possible for humans because we can go down to assembly if we really want to optimized for computers. If we really need to, we could do that. But most people don't want to do that, I think.
1: Yes, but I've had enough during university. I'm good. <laughs> Me too. <laughs> I'll, I'll stick with Ruby now.
0: <laughs> I was going to ask if anybody wants to try Ruby LSP, what do they have to do to set up VS Code? You
1: can find the GitHub repository for the extension at Shopify slash VS Code dash ruby dash lsp if you install the extension it will not just work you still need to add the ruby lsp gem to the bundle in your application and then if the ruby lsp gem is there then it should just work as long as you have that if you're using version managers such as chruby or rvm asdf that type of thing then you have to configure that in your json configurations for VS code. You just select which one you use and that should do it. We are working on a possible alternative to not have to add the root DLSP gem to the bundle, but currently it is required to be able to load RuboCop extensions properly. Say, for example, you should have RuboCop performance, RuboCop Rails. Then we can only require that if the ruby lsp is also a part of the bundle but we're looking at alternatives to possibly remove that and then it would change very slightly but for now add it to the bundle install the extension select your version manager and it should be good to go
0: you have to specify the version manager because it's running in the editor and it doesn't necessarily load your bash shell or z shell so it's it can't like auto detect it i guess because of that
1: That's exactly it. So, for example, you're in a project that uses Ruby, I don't know, 2.7. If you open VS Code from that project, from the terminal, it will pick up the environment variables and it will work properly in that project. But then if you switch to a different project from VS Code, it will not reload the environment. So in order to reload and make sure that if you're using multiple Ruby versions that we always select the right one, you have to
2: specify which version manager you're using. Gotcha. This logo for Ruby (laughs) LSP is amazing. It's it's this 9-volt battery. I mean, it's just awesome. I love it. You two weren't at RubyConf last year, Houston, were you? No,
1: we weren't. No. I had some stickers of the Ruby LSP, and I was giving it around. I still have some, so hopefully if we get to meet in one of the conferences, I'll be
2: able to provide you and whoever wants some stickers. It's the coolest logo I've seen in a long time. Mm. I love it. I love it. It's so good. Well, thank you for taking the time to come and talk to us today and thank you for all your work on this stuff. Like I said, I very much want and just thrilled somebody's working on it. So thank you for doing that. Thank you so much for having me. It was a lot of fun discussing
1: DX.
0: Yeah. Thank you so much for all this work. Somebody's got to do this work. It's not like done by the Ruby core team themselves. So we're so thankful that you guys are working on this. This is challenging stuff. So and it could become like such a crucial part of just the development environment and how you write Ruby. So I feel like it's just such a foundational thing that I can't thank you guys enough for building this and making it available to everybody. And it's not just for Shopify to use internally. Like this is something we can all take advantage of. We should all try and contribute and help out where we can because it's going to make everything easier for us.
1: So, yes, thank you. And we really want to get the Ruby LSP to a level of quality where it's like the recommended way of developing in Ruby for VS Code and other editors as well.
0: I think you're well on the way there. Posted a link to your article about all this stuff that came out today. That'll be in the show notes for anybody who wants to read that talks a bit about how this works behind the scenes and how it parses syntax and stuff like that. So that's there. We can link to your Twitter. Anything else you want to share?
1: Yeah, the, as you said, the blog post, if you're interested in learning more, there's also a video for, I can share here for the show notes. There's a video of my talk in RubyConf last year about the Ruby LSP. If you are interested in learning a little bit more. I hope that people will give it a try if they haven't yet and provide us with feedback. We're really trying to make the developer experience as enjoyable as it can possibly be, really making this for Ruby and Rubyists. So we hope you'll give it a try and let us know what you think.
2: Well, any place online people can find you.
1: Yeah, Vinny Stock. So that's V-I-N-I-S-T-O-C-K all together. You can find me on Twitter and GitHub. You can also find it on my website
2: gneestock.com if you want to find deletes. And feel free to shoot me a message. Awesome. Well thanks again. And Chris, I will see you next week. Alright. See ya.